Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. It's Bob again, and I've got Meetings Matter, Eight Powerful Strategies for Remarkable Conversations, and I've got Paul Axtell on the line today. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Now, this is a heck of a book. I mean, gosh, let me just like flip through it. We're talking 343 pages plus a little bit more. Um, and it's beautifully designed. It, it, it's very, very well organized. And I wanted to ask you, does the book reflect the philosophy you should have to run great meetings? I think it does, because the book starts with three chapters that are not about meetings. It starts with a chapter on perspective, and then a, a chapter on conversation, and a chapter on relationships, which you need those three fundamentals in place before you even go to work on designing and leading meetings. So I think it does set up the work on meetings very well by doing some more foundational work in the beginning. Mm. And, and you know, it, it's quite a lot of... of uh well, not that much of the book, but I mean, it's it's quite a big chunk of the book because most books that uh, I end up doing is they'll just jump right into it. And for you, you're saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to get to the meetings, but let's get things straightened out first. Let's define some fundamentals here. And do you do that because you feel that is a fundamental flaw with a lot of with a lot of people that are running meetings or actually in business in general? Well, good question. I think I did it. Because uh, I'm a trainer, and when I look at, from two perspectives, what do people ask me about when they come to workshops on personal effectiveness? And they have two things they're interested in, Bob. Number one, how can I have a great relationship with my kids, particularly teenagers? And number two, can we do something about the meetings in our organization? So from the first perspective, that's what people are interested in, family first and then meetings. I think the other perspective is that I think people can be remarkable in life, and if we're not going to be remarkable, then we actually set ourselves up to fail. One of my favorite quotes is by a baseball player, and he said, if you're willing to be mediocre, you'll be mediocre. And I think that's where we drift into, at least in meetings, without... I mean, we complain about them, but we don't complain at a level where we say, let's do something about it. Yeah. Fundamental. Well, I mean, it's, you know, that's a, I love that if you if you plan to be mediocre, you will be mediocre. And then the other one that's very famous too is like, if you shoot for the stars, if you don't hit the stars, you're going to be very high up, way further than if you weren't shooting for the stars. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, that's one of the kind of the principles about being productive in life is being willing to promise and go for more than you can guarantee, knowing that there are times when you need to guarantee the outcome. But for the most part, you're absolutely right. Let's go for something we're not sure we can do. And even if we fall short, we'll be way beyond that, which we know we can do. Mm. Absolutely. Which, you know, kind of reflects that. I mean, this book is way more than, than, um, a book about meetings. It's 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 a fundamental way of looking at life and or at least at business. Um, do you feel that that because you're focused on meetings, people aren't getting that? Well, it's not that they're not getting it, but but when they read the book, are they surprised 
that the knowledge that they're getting is way beyond the scope of a meeting? Absolutely. I think if we can get the book in people's hands, people uh, love it because they weren't expecting, here's the lessons to be good in life. Um, and if we probably, if we'd named it life 101, maybe we'd have trouble with it too. But I mean, meetings are a pain point for people. So it, it's about something that organizations need to do something about. I actually think that leading meetings is a core competency for leadership. And even though we have workshops on effective meetings, we're not holding top people accountable for designing and leading great meetings. So, yeah, I think people are very pleasantly surprised when they actually get into it. And that's why it's meant to kind of be a reference guide for a long, long time where people come up against the situation and say, gosh, I need to think about that. So, absolutely. You know, um, you, you used a big word there that I've never heard in the context of a meeting, designing a meeting. No way until you said that had I thought about designing a meeting. I would have a meeting. I would call a meeting. I would maybe make an agenda for the meeting. But I wouldn't sit back and actually have a philosophical thought about what is the purpose of this meeting? Uh, how should I bring it forward and actually have some strategy and design re- relevant to the meeting? That is a fundamental aha moment for me with this book. Uh, for you, what do you mean by designing a meeting? Well, on one hand, it's fairly simple, which is you start out with what are we going to talk about, which everybody does think about. But then the second question is what's the best way for us to discuss this? And I think if you would take some other examples, if you had 30 minutes with the Pope or 30 minutes with the president of the United States, I think you would prepare. You'd think exactly what do I want to talk about and what's the best way to talk about and when do I want them speaking and when do I want to be speaking? I think, the everydayness of meetings causes us to go into them without thinking much. Now, if you look at design, I don't, I'm not, this is not gene splicing. It simply is if a meeting is a series of conversations, what's the best way to have each of those conversations? Just as I think when you set up for this interview, you have a design in mind. We're going to free flow. We're going to go where it goes, but you have a fundamental design underneath that you can call on if you need to. Um, I like the analogy of jazz players, and they have to learn all these basics, but they have to know all those fundamentals to turn themselves loose when they actually get up and improvising. That's what I like managers to do. Let's get the fundamentals really, really grounded so that then when we get in the meeting, they're there if we need them, but mostly we can improvise and go where the conversation wants to go. Mm. Well, you know, you, you brought up a fundamental point there. Um understanding how to deal with situations because really if you're running a meeting your job actually sure you're supposed to be hitting certain points but it's more corralling the people and and making sure the people that are verbose get to talk but then also getting to shut up a little bit for the people that are more analytical so they can have a chance to pause and and talk so everybody gets a chance because the thing that's fascinating about a meeting uh, with, with at least with like four or five people in a meeting instead of a one-on-one or a one-on-two uh, is that you've got these different personality types and it's very rare that you go into a meeting and the person that's running the meeting is actually uh, coaching the meeting or, or uh, controlling the meeting so everybody gets to speak in their own voice. 
Exactly. I think four or five people, not a problem. Because if there's four or five of us, Bob, number one, we're physically close enough that we're not going to mess with each other. We're going to kind of be good to each other because we're just physically close. And there's enough time for everybody to get in. And if there's only five of us and one of us is not speaking, we notice it. If you have 20 in a meeting, number one, the physical distance starts to cause a lack of connection. Let's say it's easier for people to be troublesome if they're far away from you. There's not enough time for everybody. And so the conversational styles that might work and play out in a group of four or five start to become flaws in a group of 20. Because you're right, the highly reflective people who are probably have the best sense of where the conversation is and where it might go next don't get in in a group of 20. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of meeting. And this is so fundamental, but I still feel people don't do it. I mean, number one, is there an agenda? How many people, how many meetings has everybody been to that, hi, thanks for everybody being here. And then he don't say, this is what we have to accomplish at the meeting. He never says that. We just like jump in and there's a lot of crosstalk and how you do and how's the family. You waste five, 10, 15 minutes with this completely irrelevant conversation. Is that conversation important to the meeting uh, or can you actually cut it right out? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And maybe we're not going to get to the place because people are so busy that they send out the agendas ahead of time with things for people to prepare. But it doesn't seem to make any sense to start a discussion without knowing how long are we going to talk about this and where do we want to be at the end? And is it really clear about what we're looking for from people? Um, Bob, I think the perspective is what's missing here. People who call a meeting are not thinking about the responsibility that they have when they choose to schedule a meeting. And the way I like to think about it is if you call a meeting and ask me to come, you're responsible for respecting my time and talent. And that means you better have given a lot of thought to how you're going to use my time. And I think managers call meetings because they know they can and they we've just kind of drifted into, if we go back to this word mediocre, a mediocre way of approaching meetings. So, yeah, I think if we could get the perspective in, it's disrespectful of my time for you to call a meeting without having well thought out how we're going to spend our time together. You know, one of the most difficult type of meetings, uh, and because of economic situations, people seem to be leaning towards it more and more, are uh, phone conference calls. Very difficult to manage, very difficult to participate in, uh, a little bit on the annoying side. Do you feel that uh, you really need to have a visual cue uh, and have a video element in your conference calls? Well, it depends on the topic there, Bob. I think some topics, first of all, I say let's not use PowerPoint unless it's absolutely necessary for the conversation. So that's kind of my default position. If you look at virtual meetings, there's a couple of things I think are required. Number one, you have to call on people. There's no way to manage who gets into the conversation, particularly people who are calling in, without calling on people. 
and it has a kind of a secondary effect. It's not my intention. It reduces the amount of multitasking by people who that you can't see. And that's not. I don't think that's why you call on people to control them, but it has that impact. Uh, you need to be thoughtful about who gets in the conversation. So if you have people on a call, I think you should have a little chart next to you with people's names and keep track of who's been in the conversation, who has not. And if it's a big group, I would have somebody sitting next to you doing that visual chart for you. So you can quickly glance and say, wow, I haven't heard from this group. I haven't heard that perspective yet. And then you can check in with them. Also, some the small things, like if you're calling in and most of the people, Bob, are in a room together, side conversations of people in the room become, they make you feel like you're not a part of the group. So we have to be even more clear about no distractions technology, no side conversations when you work virtually. And then I just think you need to do the good meeting things, but you probably have to verbalize them much more directly because you don't have eye contact with people. So same meeting approaches, probably a little slower. Now, the one thing I think is different because people aren't together geographically, it's useful to spend more time up front connecting with people from a relationship point of view. And I don't mean everybody gets to speak, but let's say you have 10 people on from different locations or different countries. I think it's useful to say, you know, I'd like three people to tell me what's going on in your country this week as a way of building connection, as a way of honoring relationships without taking a lot of time. Mm. Hmm. Um, I wanted to talk to you, you know, in, in the way that the, the content of the book works. I mean, you've got stage one through eight, uh, and these are progressive stages. Out of all those stages, is there one that you think is... Uh, misunderstood most than uh, more than all the others or there are a couple well let me start with the one I think is most missing I don't know if most misunderstood the most missing piece in all conversations at home at work is the wrap-up phase the closure phase so you before you leave topic A to go to topic B or before you end a conversation at home it's wrapping it up so that that conversation moves forward in time. So that conversation leads somewhere. If you don't wrap up effectively, you end up with a lack of alignment. You end up with a lack of specific commitments. You end up with people not being on board. So the closing piece, I think, is the most missing piece. And when I work with senior executives, and we're not working on meetings, but we're working on them just being better, the piece in conversation we always work on first is closing every conversation. That would be my first I think the second candidate that's most understood is people have listening associated with following and comprehending. They do not have listening associated with somebody feeling like they've been hurt. How do I know that? Well, because People come in and multitask. People check their smartphones. People bring other work. Well, what allows them to do that? If they think they've got listening paired up with following the conversation, then they can multitask. If they think listening is about having each person who speaks feel like they've been heard and honored 
with your attention, then multitasking doesn't come into play. So I think that's the most misunderstood piece in that we think that listening means following and understanding, comprehending. No, listening means when somebody speaks, they feel like they've had your full attention, they feel heard, like you've devoted yourself to their speaking. And that piece is missing everywhere. Cindy and I, that's uh, my wife, we were just commenting, you know, I bet it's less than three times a year when we fully get listened to, when somebody's interested in some part of our life and is willing to stay out of the conversation long enough for, for us to speak about it at length. Hmm. It's rare. Well, do you think it's, um, you know, in, in a meeting scenario, regardless if it's, it's uh, personal or, or with your neighbor or in an office environment, uh, fundamentally, people really have a hard time with the art of conversation. I mean, it's, it's a lost art, I personally feel, because the art of conversation is looking at the person and really concentrating on what they're saying, like every single word. And then based on that, formulating uh, a response that is, you know, it uh, like you said, it honors what they've just said. It's almost like repeating what they've said, but, oh, I need more information. You're right. It is a lost art and um, probably more important than the strategies about meetings. If we could simply get powerful, profound listening in place, conversation goes differently. Now, if we just take one small perspective there, if you're the top person in the meeting, your attention matters when you provide it and it hurts when you don't provide it. So there's nothing better than to have somebody high in the organization devote themselves to you when you're speaking. And then even more importantly, tell you what they take away from what you said. Yeah, well, it proves that they're listening, and or it proves that they're uh, they believe in what you're trying to communicate enough to reiterate it and say, "Oh, okay, I, I'm not sure about this part. Can you explain that a little bit more?" Yes, and in addition, here's what I'm taking away from what you just said. If it put it in a a very typical meeting that I think needs to be looked at is update meeting. So you have a senior manager and six people come in and they do 10-minute presentations or updates. Well, first of all, if you think about it, in 10 minutes, you cannot have a discussion. You can't really get into a conversation about a project or a business. But let's set that aside. Typically, after somebody makes a presentation, and they might have spent two days preparing for this presentation, the senior manager say, good, thank you. Far more powerful if the senior manager said, okay, I appreciate that. Here's the three things I'm taking away from your presentation, and I've got one follow-up question for you. After spending two days preparing, it would be nice if the senior manager would say, here's the three things I'm taking away here. Quite different than, you did a good job, I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and if you have that level of communication in an organization, in the long run, the organization is going to be run a lot smoother. It will. If you, and I think that's the other thing. And when people look at uh, meetings, they don't see the leverage. Just in, people tend to think, well, we'll save time. Yes, you'll save time. You'll save 25, 35, 40% of time in meetings if you start to run meetings well. But the other thing that happens, all of your groups, 
will get better. Because if you look at a group being a group of people who are connected through conversation, if you start to have effective meetings, the groups feel better. And then people feel connected about their value, so individual performance improves. So I don't think people recognize the leverage the meeting provides to a lot of other things in the organization, including culture. If you want a culture of safety, permission, uh, challenging, engagement, meetings is the starting place to make that happen. Hmm. Well, I'm a big believer in... um the theory that that most organizations have a really really hard time communicating properly and uh, meetings are, are a fundamental cause of a lot of that um, I think there's a disconnect also with with the vocabulary if you're on c-suite and you're talking to senior managers you have a completely different vocabulary than when you're talking to people that are mid managers or people that are running around trying to organize a trade show do people that are running those type of meetings, do they take the language into consideration? Uh, probably not. I mean, that's a good inquiry, one that I've not studied a lot. I do know there's a certain shorthand amongst people at the same level. I also know that clarity is one of the most important pieces in conversation. And if everybody's peers, you're likely to go back and forth. You're likely to challenge. You're likely to say, what do you mean? When you get a range of levels in a meeting, clarity often ends up missing because the people lower in the organization do not push back as freely. They end up leaving a meeting and say, what do you suppose he meant by that? Or do you think she really means what she said there? Well, if they're having that conversation afterwards, it means there's a conversation they didn't have in the meeting. I also think if you kind of look at the question you posed there about the difference between levels, I think the lower you go in an organization, you go to people who maybe aren't supervisors, maybe they're doing whatever their particular competency is. We're not asking those people what they think as much. So if you look at a culture, you're either directive or you pretty much have a culture of engagement and engagement requires the listening piece that we spoke about earlier. And it requires that you authentically say, what do you think? And then you're willing to listen. That takes time. It takes time in a meeting to open it up and listen until everybody's been heard. That's a piece that I think would be, we'd be well served if we did that as we started to spread meetings across levels. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that it, it goes back to very early in the conversation where the person that's running the meeting or orchestrating the meeting uh, kind of lays that out and say, look, here's the in the meeting, these are the goals I want to go, and I need to hear from every single level, and I want to give you guys permission to ask me any questions. It's irrelevant. There are no manager levels in this meeting. Everybody's at the same level and there's no such thing as a silly question because you may think it's silly, but you will ask it and three other people in the organization will benefit from it. Having those type of setups before the meeting starts, I think is critical. I agree completely. I think, and then I'm going to say that we need to add one more piece. So you need both the permission to speak up, ask questions, and the encouragement to do that. And then you're also going to have to call on people because 
if we've got a history of not speaking up, the permission up front might not get us there. Um, but you're absolutely right. I, that setup, I mean, there's a lot of people that said setup is 80% of everything, whether that's preparing for your golf swing or that's preparing for a presentation or whether that's preparing for a meeting. Setup in conversation is also missing. So the old adage about well, before you make a presentation, tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and tell them what you told them. That maps on pretty good to a meeting topic, setting it up, having the conversation, wrapping it up. Mm. Yeah, that's a good segue because, uh, you know, you, you made this point uh, earlier, closing uh, closing the conversation is, is really critical. Can we dig into that a little bit more? Because I think that's a huge learning that the listeners can get. Um, how do you actually close a conversation so it makes the conversation have way more value? Very good. So let's just start with a simple example, let's say at home, and a family member brings up a topic, you talk about the topic, and you're about you're going to bring up something else. I think it's simple courtesy, and it's a method of closure to say, was there anything else you wanted to say or ask about this because I was going to start talking about something new? So you're checking to see whether people are complete before you change topics. So if you think about closing a meeting, so you've had a conversation, there would be a number of pieces that you simply do. So the first one is this one, checking for completion. Was there anything else that anybody needed to say about this because we're going to go to the next topic? So checking for completion. Two, checking for alignment. And simply, it's, are, is everybody good with where we ended up here? Is we all in agreement of what we've laid out? So checking for alignment. Three, checking for next steps. Who's going to do what as a result of this conversation and by when are you going to do it? Without specific commitments and time, you should not expect anything to happen. And this is a missing piece, Bob. Why? Because we're worried about micromanaging. We're worried about not trusting. We want people to be self-starters. So we've drifted into where we do not pin people down. It's simply good project management to say, okay, what are the next steps? Who's going to do it? And by when will you do it? It will save you lots of mischief if you're specific. Then the fourth piece is the one we mentioned earlier appropriately, not on every conversation, but what are we, what are we taking away from this conversation? So we've had this 40-minute discussion about diversity. I'd like three or four people to say what you're taking away from the conversation because value can be expressed in addition to who's going to do what by when. There's also value in, well, you know, I wasn't thinking about that before and I've got a new appreciation appreciation for this. And so what value are people taking away from the conversation? And then the last one, again, only when appropriate, is there somebody in the meeting or in this conversation that we needed to acknowledge because they said something that was the tipping point or they said something that everybody was thinking and nobody was willing to say it. And I just, we should thank them for that. Then the other piece is, is there some other group in the organization that we said good things about in this room? They're not represented and we should let them know that we said good things about them. So those would be the pieces, checking for completion, checking for alignment, checking for next steps, checking for value, 
and then checking for acknowledgement. Hmm. Wow. I love that acknowledgement part because I think that is a huge missing part with a lot of, you know, you, you a bunch of people go into a meeting and then the person comes out of the meeting and then they don't say anything about the meeting. And everyone says, so what was the meeting? Like, that yeah, was okay. They don't give a report. Oh, we discussed this and this. They really like what we did last Wednesday. That, I mean, that once again, it goes back to a lack of communication. People thinking that, ah, why do I need to say this? It's wasting time. Not realizing that that's going to motivate and actually create time. I agree, Bob. I think there's, this is a thing, a piece that might be under, misunderstood. So if you go to the movie, <clears throat> movies in North America, you're likely to be asked one or two questions when you come out. Did you like it and what did you think about it? They pull for assessment. Same way if your kids come home from school, how was school? They pull for assessment. It's a different conversation. Value and acknowledgement is a different conversation. If you walk out of a movie, what did you find yourself thinking about during the movie? Was there anything in the movie that reminds you of your childhood? Is there anything in the movie that would be fun for you and I to discuss? Those pull for value. Those pull for acknowledgement. They're not assessments questions. Same way, tell me what happened at school today creates a conversation. It doesn't create fine, okay, whatever. So I think the other thing is we fundamentally are asking not very powerful questions when we come out of meetings, say, well, how was the meeting? So when people ask you that, you should listen to it and say, well, let me tell you a couple things that I'm taking away from the meeting. Saying it's good or bad serves no value particularly if you're saying it's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it you know, it, it goes back to fundamental communication skills, and if everybody, well, not everybody, but if you as a manager, and I'm talking to the listening audience now, um, take a lot of these thoughts and, and, and procedures as far as how to be conscious when you're communicating with people, in the long run, you will be teaching people to listen to yourself. So it's an investment. It's a time investment in everybody around you. So it will make your day and your ability to communicate to them over the long run much smoother and much more efficient. All right. Let's talk about not having a meeting because part of having meetings is deciding whether to go to a meeting. Is that something that you should consider when somebody invites you to a meeting? Should I go to this meeting? Does it bring me value? And if you feel it doesn't bring you value, how can you break the news to the person that's asked you to come to the meeting? Hmm. Well, it would be wonderful if organizations gave their people permission not to go. <laughs> that would be, I mean, can you imagine some senior manager, senior manager sending out a note saying, look, I give you permission to not go to any meeting that's not a good use of your time. That would be a breakthrough. Now, I do think when you decline, you have certain responsibilities. So, for instance, you're part of a staff group, and for whatever reason, you decline going to a meeting. I think you essentially agreed to the following. You agreed to have somebody take notes and catch you up on what happened so that you are informed. Number two, you give the group permission to assign you work, even though you're not there. Oh, nice. 
And three, your default position is you will align with any decisions that are made. And if they happen to come up with something you can't live with, you will get in touch and you will work it out within 24 hours. So in essence, you're going to have somebody represent you at the meeting and you are not going to hold up the progress of the group with your absence. So it's just not, no, I'm not coming and I'm not responsible. It's I'm choosing not to come this time, but I am responsible as though I were there. Now, I think um, the other thing would be managers, I mean, there's a lot of work been done on what's the right number of people in a meeting, and the answer is somewhere around seven or eight. But if you think about who needs to be in the meeting, okay, looking at these topics, who must be there for us to do good work? And if they can't be there, then we are not going to meet. So you have this very tight circle around who has to be there for each topic. Once you've got them there, then everybody else, it's an invitation, and an invitation can be declined. So you've kind of got the must group, and then you've got the invitees who get to look and say, is this a good use of my time, or would I be better served? But I think just the whole back-and-forth conversation that would come up about what are we going to talk about, is this a good use of my time, is it okay with you if I don't come, that would be extremely healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you, you get a very good point there where, where the, defining you have to be at this meeting and you're invited to the meeting. Nobody does that. I think if you were inviting somebody to the meeting, it's like, hey, I'd really like you to come to the meeting. You're invited and use the word invited. These are the topics we're going to try and cover, and I think you might get some benefit uh, by listening in. That's a totally different ask than, oh, there's a meeting on Wednesday at 9.30, and here's the four points we're going to cover. Exactly. Plus technology, we now have people scheduling meetings without even talking to anybody about coming. We just have this system, this computer that searches for open spots and sends you a meeting announcement. Yeah. (laughs) I'm booked. I'm booked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what's what's the difference and this is once again we're going we're drilling down to language but I think it's a critical point of the, of the conversation here is what's the difference between a meeting and a workshop and I think it's a misunderstood you know workshop is misunderstood and I think it's underutilized wow that's a great question in 35 years nobody ever asked me that question so um I like it. I do mostly workshops. Workshops are designed to leave people in a different place with respect to their thinking. That can happen in the meetings, but meetings are pretty much to move the organizational goals, objectives, and projects forward. Sometimes you're thinking in those meetings, but for the most part, you're just collecting the thinking that people walked into the meeting. You're not pressing them with far-out ideas. I think a workshop is designed to spend enough time in something so people have a chance to fundamentally change how they think about something. Uh, if you take the, go back to the listening piece, if you give people five, five deliberate practices in listening where they're not allowed to speak, they get the idea of devoting their listening to another person. They finally get that a conversation is not always back and forth, that listening is basically 
a relaxed way of being in a conversation. You're not trying to get in. You're not waiting to get in. You're not trying to do something with people say you're just kind of hanging out in this conversation in a very focused, attentive way. It takes a workshop to produce that, or it takes a workshop type of time period in a meeting to do that. I've never been able, if you take this listening piece, see, you and I talk about it, people understand it conceptually. I've never had people get it without doing an hour-long exercise. And so when I train people on meetings, we start with an hour-long exercise on listening because if we're not listening, it's not going to turn out. So I would say workshop is about training, going deeper, meetings. There's lots of different kinds of meetings. And once in a while, you should have a training piece in a meeting. I think that's a good use of meeting time. Mm. So you could have a meeting with a small workshop segment in it then. Exactly. Mm. But you would define it as that. Oh, guys, now we're just doing a little 10-minute work uh, workshop here about X. And get everybody involved, and there's activity, and there's writing down, and it's more, you know, let's do finger painting, so it's, it's a different use of the brain. Uh, just as a refresher, and then you get back to the meeting, and, and I think you have clearer thinking if you did stuff like that, too. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's say that you, people do a lot of employee surveys in organizations, and one of the low scores is always on engagement. Well, you could say, let's have a meeting about the ways to improve engagement. But within that, you could say, let's take 45 minutes and have people talk about what it feels like to be included or not included, to be heard or not unheard. What are the examples you've had in the last three months where you've seen somebody on the outside, where you've seen somebody who may not belong? And what have you done about it? So you're trying to increase the awareness for the whole belonging, being included, being heard, having a voice piece alongside of what actions can we take to improve engagement? Mm. Well, you know, it, it, it is also a big part of a meeting, which is refocusing a meeting where it kind of goes off the rails a little bit. And at yeah. what point, yeah. I mean, you can't just like be a crazy bad saying, oh, hang on, hang on. No, you got to shut up right there and let's get back to the comment. You can't be anal about it. But at what point do you, does it become entertainment and cracking jokes? Ha, 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 that was very funny. And oh, okay, that was great. And boom, let's get back to the conversation. Good question. If you if people are worried about how much time they spend in meetings, if people did two things, number one, keep meetings on track, keep the conversation on track, and everybody spoke in a focused way so that when each person spoke, they were clear, concise, and relevant, you'll save 25% of the time in meetings. Uh, now, if we think about this thing about going off track, and you're absolutely right, you don't want to be overly controlling about it. But I think that's one of the things you do in the setup to say, look, I know we're all busy. I want to keep this meeting on track. I would like your permission to step in when I think the conversation's gone off track. Is that okay with everybody if I kind of lean a little hard on us about getting off track? That would help. The second thing is I think people could starting this afternoon start to train themselves to listen for when a conversation changes or goes off track. Don't do anything about it, but for the next two weeks, 
notice every time a conversation changes or goes off track. You can train yourself where you'll start to hear almost any sentence that goes off track. And the beauty of that is you're now a choice about whether you bring it back or not. I'm not suggesting you bring it back all the time, but if you notice when it has moved off, you have choice. And then it really is, so if I'm managing a group, Bob, and it's, let's say we're having a 40-minute conversation, and all of a sudden somebody takes us off track, I simply look at my watch, and I give them three minutes to come back on their own. If they haven't come back on their own in three minutes, then I'll say, group, look, we're now talking about something different than what we intended. Do you want to stay on this new topic, or do you want to come back? Your choice but we're now off track and I want you to be conscious of it. So if it's a 10 minute conversation, then the second it goes off track, I'm now saying, I wonder if I need to do something about this or not. Or you go out to dinner with three couples, notice how conversations change without somebody being finished. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, and I notice this a lot when I'm sitting down for the first couple of times and sometimes for the, for the duration of my relationship with that client, is their inability to finish a sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you handle that? I, I handle it by hauling them back, but then usually when they start re-explaining themselves, they come up with a completely different sentence, uh, and they're really not... They're not very good communicators. So in a meeting, you'll always have somebody that is their brains thinking too fast for their mouth to actually be able to engage intelligently. How do you help people like that? First of all, the question you have to ask is, are you committed to them or not? Mm-hmm. If you're not committed to them, then I think you just go with what they give you. Uh, I also don't take people on the first or second time. So I'm pretty much an advocate for no interrupting in life. I think interrupting is rude. At the same time, there are times when conversation will be more effective if you interrupt. Mm. But if you are committed to the person and you can anticipate that there's this speaking style is going to be in every meeting, then you've got to take them aside and say, you know, Pete, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but when you speak, you go on and on and on. After you make your point, you don't seem to have this ability to wrap it up. And I notice myself, as soon as you start to speak, I stop listening. And I think it's happening to other people, too. And I just want you to be aware of it. You should do something about it. Mm. Most people are very aware, Bob, of their flaws. In fact, if you ask the question, and I do it all the time with people I meet with, because it gives us kind of a freedom to lighten up about it. I want everybody in this group of eight to tell me the two things you do in this group that probably don't work for others in the group. And people will tell the truth. Oh, I go on and on and on, or I tend to bring up stuff that's not on track, or you know what, I know I pull out my smartphone when I shouldn't and I'm checking it. People, for the most part, I would say 80% of the time, are aware of those things they do that don't work for others in the group. Bottom line, it's not that big a deal to talk to them about it. Mm. Yeah, I can see that happening in a conversation, and then the next thing you say is, great, so it's cool for us to call you on that then when it happens? It's, it's like you're, you're setting up the anticipation. It's like setting up the meeting. It's like we're not doing this to bug you. We're doing this to help you and help the meeting move forward. 
Yeah, so if you're facilitating, so and that's kind of the role I'm in now, I always ask permission. If I see something that I could give you coaching on about how your hand is up in the meeting, may I tell you? Mm-hmm. If it's something that I can recover after the meeting and tell you, then I'm going to wait until after the meeting. If it's something that happened because it's about language or it's about and I can't recreate it later, then I would like permission to stop the conversation and quickly tell you when it just happened. Could I do that? I also think HR people and senior managers don't want senior managers leading their own meeting for one reason is I want them watching their other their people perform in a meeting and giving them written feedback afterwards. Mm. That's interesting because one of the questions I had is like, who should lead a meeting? Um, if a senior manager wants to hold a meeting with uh, his team or his group, uh, can they hold a meeting and then say, well, I'm not going to be leading the meter meeting. Somebody else is going to be leading the meeting? Is, is that how the etiquette of that would work? It's about group size. I think if there's only five people, mm. yep. the manager can lead his own meeting. If it's 12 or 14 I would prefer they not lead the meeting because I want them listening to every person who speaks. I don't want them worried about getting people into the conversation. I don't want them worried about staying on track. And I want them listening for what are they going to say when they wrap up each conversation in terms of value. So four or five people, not a problem. Twelve, twenty, I would like the senior person devoting their attention to each person that speaks and what they're taking away from the conversation, and also what organizational perspectives do they have that needs to be put in at the right moment. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it just shows the value of a manager, and it's respecting the value of that manager. It's saying, look, your job isn't to actually be doing a lot of this uh, day-to-day stuff. That's what everybody else at the meeting is supposed to be doing. Your job is to be aware of what they're doing, understand how they're perceiving it, and if they're perceiving it wrong, maybe have a secondary one-on-one meeting to help align them or make them take them to the side and train them a little bit better, whatever it takes. That is a huge opportunity for a manager to really learn what's going on in the department in a very uh, non-confrontational way where people actually open up because they're unconscious of that actually happening. Exactly. Plus, if we go back to the earlier point that this is a critical skill, Let's have the young people in the group leading the meetings. Mm. You have the young person do it, and then you call them, you have a one-on-one meeting with them and say, hey, look, you did a great job. Here's where you could improve. Let's do another meeting soon, and uh, I'd love to sit in and see if you can improve. Uh, because it really shows them how they have to grow and which direction that they have to grow. Yeah, I, if you think about what allows people to be successful in the organization, whether that's the State Department, whether that's a university, whether that's an organization, after their core competency of accounting, IT, engineering, whatever it is, the ability to convene a group of people, manage the conversation such that progress is made, is the number one capacity and competency that people need. Giving them a chance to lead your meetings all the time would give them that capacity. I wanted to ask you uh, about aha moments when something crystallizes for you. You know, this is this is a biggish book, and you've been working on this quite a long time. When you were writing the book and, and getting stuff down uh, out of your brain and onto paper, for you, what was a, 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 an aha moment? Well, I think one of the ahas was when I got that, if we don't get the perspective piece in, 
then all the tactics and strategies won't make a difference. If we can't get people thinking that meetings matter and you're responsible for how the meeting goes, if we don't get those points across, uh, we're in trouble. And I think the other aha was the whole notion um, of being remarkable. I was actually in Tanzania a year ago on a safari, and there was a veterinarian there, and which was great because he knew all about animals. And he asked me what I did, and I told him, well, I work on getting people to be remarkable, whether that's in groups or individually. And he says, i got a story for you. And I said, okay. He says, well, he lives out in Canada, I don't know, some province. And he had a client, an elderly woman who lost her pony. Her pony was ill, and so she asked if he would come out. And Ken says, sure, I went out there, and I told her, I need to put your pony down. And she says, okay, well, will you put my pony down for me? And then will you bury my pony? And he says, absolutely, I'll take care of it for you. So she left. He's standing there over the pony, puts the pony down. He said, what am I going to do? He looks and he sees a small church. So he walks over to the church. And here's the guy who's got a little backhoe who digs graves. And he said, you know, I'm over here. I've got this client. She's elderly. She just lost her pony. I wonder if you would help me put the pony in the ground. First of all, the guy's response was wonderful. He says, I'd be honored. So they get the backhoe over there. They're digging the hole. And Ken says, I told the ditch digger, that's good. That's good enough. That's deep enough. And the ditch digger said, no, you know your job. I know mine. This hole is not perfect yet. And this hole is going to be perfect before we put that pony in there. And he finished that hole. Every side was perfectly straight up and down. There was not any extra dirt in the bottom. So if you can dig a hole from the perspective of being remarkable, we can do meetings from that same perspective. Mm. Wow. Very, very powerful. Uh, Meetings Matter, eight powerful strategies for remarkable conversations. I've had Paul on the line with us today. And Paul, before you go, where can people go to learn more? Well, they can get the book on Amazon.com. If they go to my website, paulxtel.com, there's a whole section of resources, handouts they can download. There's blogs about meetings. There's also blogs about being a parent. Um, So Amazon's convenient for people. paulxtel.com has lots of resources about coaching, about meetings, about being productive, about being remarkable. So those are their two access points, Bob. Awesome. Paul, thanks for being remarkable on the show. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I appreciate it so much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.